and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Greg Lewis, who is a member of the Tax Practitioners Board. Greg is a chartered accountant, chartered tax advisor, and registered tax agent. He began his career as a graduate at KPMG, then moved to Ernst & Young, where he was promoted to the position of principal in the tax division. After returning to KPMG as a partner, Greg went on to become a consultant in taxation at the law firm Minter Ellison. He has been a company director and chairman of various organisations, both public and private. He is a consultant to private companies on a wide range of technical and strategic matters. Greg holds a Bachelor of Economics and a Master's in Taxation. Greg was appointed to the Tax Practitioners Board in December 2015 and was reappointed in February 2019 for a further three years. Greg was also acting chair of the board for periods in 2017 and 2019. Greg, welcome to Taxiac. Thank you for having me today. It is wonderful to have you here. Uh, for some time I've been wanting to speak to you and have a chat about the Tax Practitioners Board and the, and the role that it plays with tax agents. So perhaps in way of background, could you explain what is the board? What is its role? How seriously should tax agents treat the board? Good question. Uh, I get asked that question from uh, potentially agents who are looking at uh, uh, joining uh, the board and joining the profession. So the board is a statutory uh, entity that's been set up under the Tax Agent Services Act, uh, which is a piece of Commonwealth legislation. Uh, it, amalg- it amalgamated uh, all of the state-based boards that existed prior to 2010. So consolidating them into one Commonwealth board. So some uh, younger practitioners may not have been aware that this was all state-based for many indeed, decades. Indeed, yes. So for many, many years, you if you lived in the state of Victoria or Queensland, you had to make your application for registration with that individual state-based board. So uh, the TASA brought the board to a Commonwealth level, which is really a fantastic uh, initiative uh, from a practitioner's perspective, especially given we operate in the digital age today and we have clients... Uh, potentially uh, servicing uh, or we can service all around the country. Uh, The board itself uh, has about seven board members. They're all independently appointed by the minister. So our accountability, uh, and I always get asked this question, is not to Chris Jordan. So we don't report to the Commissioner of Taxation. We report to the minister. So our minister, minister we report to the minister who is Michael Suker, who is currently the assistant treasurer. Uh, All of us are independently appointed. And as you mentioned before, uh, I was reappointed for three years at the start of the year. we are all uh, either current practitioners or have been practitioners. So I think that's really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Because Look, I think there's a perception that this is some statutory body with appointed public servants, but all the board members are practitioners. Absolutely. We're not, uh, as someone would say, Commonwealth public service uh, uh, employees permanently employed uh, by the ATO. We are independent in our own uh, mind uh, and our own thinking. Uh, Most of us uh, are still employed in, some of us are full-time, some of us are part-time, depending upon our our age brackets and what we're doing in terms of our roles on the board. But the core piece is we either are practitioners or have been practitioners. So when I go out and talk to practitioners, I think the great thing that the board brings for the profession is that when we look at matters, whether they be regulatory or whether or not there's a case brought before me, which may involve a complaint against a registered practitioner, we will look at the matter through not only our regulatory role and our our obligations under that, but also 
from a practitioner's perspective. So we do understand what it's like to be in the profession you know the and pressures. the challenges. And the, and the challenges. pressures, correct, yeah. Mm. We know people are time pressured. We know there are fee pressures. So we do bring that lens. And I would argue that gives the board enormous credibility in the profession. Uh, and that's the feedback I receive when I go out and talk to people is that we are well regarded as a regulator and people respect the decisions uh, that we are, that we take and also the guidance that we uh, put out there for uh, practitioners. Um, just one thing I think you touched on, uh, we are currently going through a review. So the TASA is currently being reviewed and our reviewer is Keith James. He's doing an excellent job. Um, some people ask why is the TASA being uh, reviewed and I got asked that question last week at an ATO open forum. When the TASA was originally enacted, uh, the explanatory memorandum did mention the requirement for a review. So here is the review going on at present. So, Greg, my recollection was that a review was supposed to be undertaken within three years of the commencement of TASA, which was 2009. So we're only about seven years late. Well, we may be a little bit late, Robin, but uh, I always take the view better late than never. So I think the time that's uh, transpired between uh, the date you've mentioned and today probably gives the reviewer a better perspective on the profession and probably the future requirements of the TASA. Uh, we've just had, and I think we haven't spoken about it yet, but the Inspector General of Taxation has released their report on the future of the profession. So I think it's actually quite timely that we're doing the review this year because we have the benefit of that report. And also, I think if you look at the last three to five years, I'd argue as a practitioner, the evolution of digital services in our profession is just it's just amazing. If we did the review in 2009, uh, that world digitally is quite different to the world we sit in today. We'll speak more about the review later, but for those who don't know Keith James, he's um, a partner with the, the law firm Holden Wilcox in Melbourne and he served on the Board of Taxation and has um, been around the profession for countless decades. Indeed, and I believe, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, that he was originally also involved in uh, the establishment of the TASA. So he has very good working knowledge of, of the TASA. So uh, I look forward to seeing his final report uh, coming out later this year. All right, if we can now have a chat about some statistics. There's been a lot of attention on tax agents and how many individuals use them and the dependency and the complexity of the law, but just to throw some figures around. The ATO statistics show that around 75% of individual taxpayers in Australia use a tax agent to lodge their tax return. That figure increases to about 95% of businesses who engage a tax agent. Now this is second only, uh, to my knowledge, Italy who have a greater use of tax agents. So I'm not sure whether it actually places us and whether that's a good or a bad thing. It's great for the profession. Uh, I can't comment on how we rate against other countries. So I, I must say every day in the profession, I learn something. And if that statistic is right today, Robin, I've actually learned something in that regard. But <laughs> those statistics do accord with the communication that we have uh, with the ATO that around 94, 95% of businesses use tax agents and around 75 use individuals. And it's very interesting to note that that 75% figure has actually held steady for a number of years. Mm. I think if you talk to a Colin Walker, who we all know quite well, um, and he used to get asked this question all the time with the advent of e-tax and other digital portals, there was a lot of talk in the profession that the statistic around individuals using tax agents would actually decline. Um, but uh, from my understanding of the stats, that number's actually held relatively steady, which is really interesting uh, for today's discussion. Which suggests that taxpayers still see the value in engaging a tax agent. 
As a practitioner, I would argue absolutely yes uh, in that regard. I don't have any other evidence to suggest and no otherwise. And whatsoever. Yes. Now, if we break it down further, there are around 78,000 registered agents in Australia that are registered and regulated by the Tax Practitioners Board. Mm. But break this down further, it's about 42,000 registered tax agents, about 15,000, 16,000 BAS agents, and about 20,000 what we call tax financial advisors. So these are financial advisors who are registered to be able to provide tax advice. Correct. Those stats are very similar to what uh, I would currently have today. That that's, It might be seventy nine to 80,000, but that's roughly in the ballpark, yes. Okay. Now, of the tax agents, I've got some further breakdown, mm. and this comes from the tax office. Around 73% of registered tax agents are male, and about 27% are female. Mm. And by far the biggest category is the 60-plus age group. So in other words, we've got a demographic that is older and male. If we look at the BAS agent community, we could just about flip this around. The male population is 19%, the female population is 81%, and the two biggest categories are the ages 40 to 60. So it's a younger demographic, and it's dominated by the females. The ATO has also provided figures that there are 176,000 practitioners aged 26 to 40, but interestingly, the gender balance is equal, 50-50 male-female. And that, again, is to be expected, that we've more or less got equal gender at the, the entry levels of the profession, but by the time they get to the senior roles, a number of the women have dropped out. Mm. What I wanted to turn to now is the disciplinary cases. Now, the figures, again, I'm going to run through the numbers first, and then, Greg, I want to throw to you to make some observations and, and try and work out some insights, what's going on here with the numbers. Mm-hmm. In 2015-16... There were 1,641 disciplinary breaches. This is the number of breaches of the Tax Agent Services Act. So to be clear, this is not the number of cases necessarily or the number of tax agents. It's the number of mm-hmm. breaches of the Act. So 1641 in 1516. 1617, that increased to 2,508. 1718, a slight decrease, 2,423. But 1819, 5,286, that's tripled from three years earlier. Does this mean that agents are doing things a whole lot worse than they were three years ago, or are you just getting a whole lot better at picking it up? Uh, that's a very leading question, uh, Robin. So uh, it's it actually a very good question to ask because just to give some context for people on the cast today, uh, if you go back to the earlier statistics, uh, you know, three or four years ago, we didn't have tax financial advisors uh, as registrants with the board. So in the years 16, 17, 17, 18, the board had to devote a lot of its uh, focus and, re- and resources to onboarding 19,000 tax financial advisors. So in those years, I would expect anecdotally that the statistics to remain relatively level. Um, I wondered where you were going with that, Greg, because it was suggesting almost that they weren't on board at the time, now they're on board, so they're the cause of the increased breaches. But you're saying that the resources were being the devoted resources to bring them on board. The resources were being devoted, yes. So from a board perspective, uh, in those years, we had about 100, 125 staff. So we had to devote significant resources to onboarding 
the uh, tax financial advisors into the profession. And there was enormous amounts of work done by the board to do that. So our, our focus in those years was what I would have termed a registrations focus. We still did investigations and enforcement. However, in the 18-19 year, we sort of had, a, I would argue, a bit of a confluence of positive events. So you've had, we finished the onboarding of the TFAs. We've had the ATO going through a process of, and we're all aware of it in the profession, a focus on work-related expenses. We've had a big focus on uh, the black economy. Um, so those two things combined with we've been able to redirect resources uh, from the registration function into the enforcement investigations, we have been able to identify uh, more agents in terms of uh, potential breaches of the TASA. And it's not that agents in the last 12 months are breaching a TASA more. It's been uh, a confluence of those events. And the other matter I just wanted to make note is, and we'll probably talk about through the session, is the advent of data analytics in the last couple of years has also allowed us to get better access to quality data from the ATO, and that's in particular with personal tax obligations, whereas four or five years ago, we, we just didn't have that technolo technological ability to get that data. So there's been a, com a confluence of positive events. It's not that agents, for some reason, magically in the last 12 months have uh, increased their breaches of the TASA. Greg, it would be remiss of me not to also mention that the board has increased funding. $20 million mm -hmm. of extra funding has been provided to facilitate the increased compliance activities. Um, and that, of course, is being funded through increased tax agent fees. And that has been noted by uh, practitioners out there. Uh, indeed, I get uh, early on when uh, the former or the previous Minister for Financial Services, Kelly O'Dwyer, who was our Minister at the time, when uh, Minister O'Dwyer uh, put through the changes uh, and we had the changes in the fees, uh, we did get asked a lot of questions and I was asked a lot of questions when we went out and spoke. But on a whole, most people were positive. They can see the targeting of the dollars into investigations and enforcement. And my argument as a, as a regulator, but also as a practitioner, is that the more resources we've got to investigations and enforcement, it's about us being able to identify those in the profession who are doing the wrong thing so we can create a level playing field. Uh, and that's very important for all of us because we're all in business and we don't want people to have unfair playing uh, advantages out there. Agreed. Now, some figures that have been thrown around. This came from a financial review article called Tax Accountants <laughs> Face the Fluffy Pillow. So yes. um, we've had some fun with the headline there. <laughs> but the point of the article, it says that 78% of tax returns prepared by the country's 78,000 tax agents. Now, I think that figure is slightly exaggerated in terms of 78,000 tax agents because there are only 42,000 tax agents, there are 78,000 agents, Agreed. so they're not all tax agents as such, <laughs> others are VAS agents and tax financial advisors, but 78% of the tax returns lodged by tax agents have errors in them. We've seen figures from the ATO that of the tax returns they've audited that included rental activity, 9 out of 10 returns had errors in them. Now, 87% of those errors related to deductions, 13% related to income. Mm. But notably, 85% of those returns had been prepared by tax agents. We've heard figures of the income tax returns lodged generally across the, the Australian population. The extrapolated figures indicate that 76% of agent prepared returns have errors in them versus only around 56, 58% of uh, self-prepared returns. So what's going on? Um, this is a very important focus for the board at the moment uh, in terms of some of the statistics that you've uh, just spoken about. The evidence that's been given to me is that uh, when the ATO initially undertook the work-related expense 
uh, initial uh, reviews and audits that uh, roughly seven out of 10 agent prepared returns for individuals required an adjustment. Uh, whereas those that were self-prepared, i.e. Greg Lewis goes on today and uses a e-tax or some self-prepared software, the rate of adjustment was less. Uh, that is uh, uh, evidence and uh, uh, that's been provided to the board. In the rental property space, uh, the evidence from the ATO that's been given to us in terms of statistics is that around 9 out of 10 um, uh, audits and reviews that were undertaken, I, th I believe, recently out of a uh, total pool of 300 uh, required adjustment. Um, if I have to make a couple of comments as a board member, these are disturbing uh, statistics. Um, one would expect that the rate of adjustment for a individual prepared return by an agent, one would have thought that it would be less than a self-prepared. Um, and the rate of adjustment in the rental property expense uh, pool of 300 returns were looked at is again, um, that is disturbing. That is not what I would be expecting as a practitioner. Um, that uh, would be you know, the provision of services to a competent standard. Are these um, just inadvertent errors, a bit of an oversight, something that was misunderstood, or is there something... I don't want to use the word deliberate, but more reckless going on. It, look, it is a good question. I don't have any real hard evidence to to provide with you. I'd just be speculating uh, in, in that aspect. Uh, all I can say is in the WRE space, the referrals that we do get are generally at the more egregious end. So they're not just the once-off Robin makes a mistake in preparing Greg's return. They are uh, sometimes and generally where Robin has across the board on one or two topics um, made a number of consistent errors. Now, whether that's knowingly and reckless is really undertaken on a case-by-case -case basis. But it becomes a systemic issue because it's not confined to one taxpayer. Yes, and that, that that's a concern from the board's perspective and also, more importantly, from the ATO's perspective and hence the reason for the referrals to us. So uh, one of the great things, going back to your earlier piece, is that as a board member, I'm independently appointed, but we do work closely with the ATO. Uh, one of our great sources of referrals is the ATO. So when the ATO goes out and undertakes compliance work, and I'm just looking at you and focusing on you just for this purpose, if it's if they feel and see that this is something that's been quite consistent across your practice base, it's most likely that we will receive a referral for initial consideration for investigation. I think that's a point worth expanding on because if I think back over the years, if a taxpayer did the wrong thing, whether it was mm. omitted income or overclaimed expenses, the ATO would, of course, undertake reviews, audits, there would be adjustments, they might go through the, the, the court process, tribunal hearings. But my point is that the ATO would go after the taxpayer. Mm. But increasingly, we're seeing a dovetail where the agent is pursued by the board at the same time or following the tax office pursuing the taxpayer. So there's this two-pronged approach. And it's, you know, for every taxpayer that's doing the wrong thing, the agent should also be mindful that they can be reviewed and scrutinised and they could face sanctions out of this. It's a good observation. Um, one of our preferences is that the board that... If the ATO is undertaking a review and or an audit and they are of the view that potentially, and I'm looking at you again, that there is you know, potentially systemic problems across your practice in particular areas, I'm just focusing on individual returns. As a board uh, member, I'd prefer to see that referral early on um, because then we can deal with that behaviour early on and hopefully that's been done in tandem at the same time that 
the ATO may well be undertaking you know, amendments or adjustments to an individual's return. The earlier we can get involved, the earlier we can ultimately protect a consumer uh, in terms of future clients in the preparation of services. But importantly, the other remit is also upholding the integrity of the profession. That's important for all of us. Now, there's been some media attention on some what they call high-profile sculpts. Mm. So, again, this Fin Review article, which uh, was dated the 8th of August this year, this is all publicly available information, so I'm not speaking out of turn here. But the article refers to Van der Gould, who was well-known to many of our listeners and, and tax agents around the country, a Sydney-based accountant whose various dealings included a high court hearing in the case of Bywater Investments, and that was mm-hmm. to determine whether certain overseas companies incorporated in the, the Bahamas and Panama, etc., uh, were in fact uh, residents of Australia for tax purposes. Um, the alleged fraud in that case was $383 million. Uh, Peter Moltoni, $31 million in the British Virgin Islands, and this was undeclared income, allegedly, and... David McNeese. Now, many won't know the name, but this is a um, or was a Wollongong-based accountant mm. who was acting for Gary Ogden. And anyone who's attended my sessions or sat through some of my podcasts, I have referred to Gary Ogden in previous discussions. A taxpayer who claimed a creative collection of expenses against his income that he was deriving as a, a sales consultant for a computer company. Uh, things like work-related expenses where there was overtime meal allowance. That was actually a ski trip. We had a patio table that had been dressed up as a work table. We had 70% of home electricity expenses being claimed. Floor space was around 31% of the home and included, this is for home office expenses, uh, included stairwells walking to the study and the garage because he parked his car in that space. We had $5,000 of secretarial expenses paid to his seven-year-old son to answer the telephone. The cost of feeding his tax agent, sunglasses and sunscreen. I mean, the list goes on and I'm not going Mm. to exhaust it now. But that was certainly a very creative set of claims. But I think the point is that that was not an isolated claim for that practice. Mm. And as a result, all three of these agents have been deregistered. Absolutely. Uh, I'll comment on two of them. So Peter Moltoni, a high profile tax professional in the Western Australian uh, tax profession. Uh, That is, again... From a board's perspective, a disturbing case um, in terms of where that's landed. Ultimately, he was declared bankrupt uh, late last year, I think owing debts of around $36 million. Uh, Once those matters had been through the courts, we acted very quickly to terminate his registration. And with, I might add, a minimum non-renewal period of five years. Which is the maximum, isn't it? That is the maximum, yes. So uh, you may ask me the question, should it be longer? I won't comment on that because sometimes I do get asked that question. No, I won't ask you that. But we're only allowed to set a a maximum five years. So you can't permanently disbar someone? No, we can't currently at the moment uh, under the current TASA. And it'll be Uh, interesting to see whether in the review they um, uh, spend any time looking at that and make recommendations. Absolutely, yeah. It'd be Mm. interesting to see where uh, Mr James goes in that space um, because there may well be uh, submissions that have been given to him in in that regard. So we'll wait and see there. The other one which I find probably the most disturbing, and you were smiling at me as we were just talking, uh, Mr McNeese uh, is a really good example of the TPB and the ATO working hand in glove. I hate to use that term from being corny, but... Uh, the ATO did go out. They identified some compliance issues in DW McNeese's uh, practice. He was a partner in that practice. Uh, they did find a range of 
clients where they required adjustment. As a result of that, they did make a referral to us. Uh, and I, I, there's two things that probably stand out to me uh, in that case was, and I think you made the comment, the creativity that was used to create a nexus between the expense and relevant assessable income. I'll give two examples was, you know, claiming uh, you know, the family dog as a private guard dog. Uh, I find that uh, very interesting. It'd be like me claiming our Labradoodle at home as a guard dog. So we're not talking about wilders here, are we? Not that I'm aware of, no. So that's that was relatively creative. Uh, and the other one was claiming uh, deductions for personal training and school fees in connection with conferences and travel. So, Look, if we um, pause on that, that's, at uh, a very mm. long bow, I can understand how someone could think that personal training could help them mm. remain fit, which... Minimises their chance of having a sick day, makes them mm. more productive at work. I, I can see the connection. Now, we yeah. know it's not deductible, yeah. but... You might try and draw that thread. I yeah. get that. Yeah. But school fees. It, it is impossible to draw any connection between deriving mm. accessible income and the payment of school fees. I, Even in my wildest dreams, if you sat here and said, Greg, could you write an opinion for me to get a nexus? I'm struggling on school fees. I... Personal... Uh, sorry, personal training, I might be able to be creative, but school fees, I, I'm with you. I just... I can't fathom how you could make the connection. There just isn't a connection. There isn't. Uh, the ABC so. recently reported a series of claims, and this came from Karen Foten as an assistant commissioner with oh, the ATO, yes, yes. and it included a $58,000 wedding, which I've mm. got to give the taxpayers credit for this. They at least split it between the two tax returns and didn't claim the whole 58000 in one return. But again... I'm still struggling to get the nexus connection there. Of course, um, there is none. Perhaps something we might deal with separately <laughs> offline, how you can do that. But Mr McNeese is a really good example. We've issued a lot of press around this uh, and we've had some very positive uh, pieces of press. But he's most like an example of where you've got a practice and you do have a series of issues going on in that practice that are causing the ATO to adjust and amend multiple returns. It is not the standard that the board wants in the profession and we will not tolerate that. Hence he was ter- uh, his registration was terminated. Look, two things I want to say on that. Firstly, mm. I want to let all our listeners know that what we are discussing here are publicly reported cases. Mm. Mm. So um, we're not calling someone out where it's not already well documented that no, they have correct. been um, this, this uh, deregistered. Domain. It yes. is. Secondly, I'm often asked by agents, particularly when we get tribunal cases coming through and there's been a claim denied and we all sit back and think, well, that was pretty obvious they were going to lose the case. I'm often asked what happens to the agent. Now, of course, the case is typically not about the agent. It's about mm. the taxpayer. They lose their deduction, they cop their penalties and everybody goes home. Mm. But... The agents that I'm speaking to often want to know what happens next. And I had, in a previous discussion, asked the board, um, does the board look at tribunal cases? And I think the answer to that is yes, but can you comment on that? Um, Anecdotally, we would on occasion, but I'm not aware that we would formally go through every administrative appeal decision and then assess whether or not we should pick the telephone up and call a particular agent. I'm not aware of that activity uh, from our investigations team per se. Um, if there was something that was quite egregious that received attention, then that may occur in terms of the, our intelligence team identifying a particular matter. But so most of your a, referrals come directly from the ATO as opposed correct. to you having to do your own research? Yes, correct. Yeah, And that's, mm. I think, one of the great things of, of having a strong relationship with the ATO is that that, that works really well uh, and the material that is given to us is of good quality. 
Now, another matter that's been, again, well publicised, and the mm-hmm. board's been quite public about this, the amount of agents who owe money to the tax office. Now, <laughs> yes. we're going to get into the Code of Professional Conduct shortly. I love that topic, yes. Which will break that down. But <laughs> as a starting point, um, it's just a basic legal requirement within the Tax Agent Services Act that you as a tax agent have to pay your tax. Um, I, I feel ridiculous even having to say that out loud because it should just be a given. It should be, but it sometimes gets forgotten amongst the registrants within our um is this Total population. plumber with leaky taps? Is this an agent who is so busy, so overworked, maybe short-staffed, constant challenges of the law changing, mm. they just don't get time to do their own tax return and pay their own tax? Yeah, let me let me make a couple of comments. So just going back to the Code of Conduct, so if I was to be technical for once just on this call, Code Item 2 requires all of us to comply with the taxation laws in the conduct of our personal tax obligations. So in short, in non-technical speak, that means that you file your relevant returns and your relevant business activity statements on time. And when I talk in this context, if I can make one really important observation, it's not just about the individual agent, but that obligation also extends to related entities. So when you register with the board and you complete your annual declaration every year regarding personal tax obligations, that obligation around PTOs also uh, is in reference to related entities. So, Robin, you may have a practice entity, a service trust or a service company. If you are a director or you and or control that, then that obligation on the PTOs extends to that. Is there maybe some misunderstanding on that? Because if I read mm. paragraph 2 in section 30-10, and it's very rare that I quote any section numbers in this podcast. Yeah, I can see you actually you have that there, so well done. I will on this occasion. <laughs> it says, you must comply with the taxation laws in the conduct of your personal affairs. Mm. So are people or agents looking at that thinking, it's my personal tax return, but if my company doesn't pay tax mm. or withholding or whatever, then that's beyond the scope of this provision. Yeah, good question. Some agents, when they complete the annual declaration, which we all have to complete every year other than the year of anniversary for renewal, um, sometimes don't fully understand that. So one of the initiatives we've been taking with both the annual declaration and registration forms is we are making it very clear that it's not just you and your personal capacity but related entities because if you do read that literally one could interpret that as just you being personal. We have made sure and we've updated a lot of our registration documents to make that very clear and also our communication on that space is being made very clear around that. Some of the figures being thrown around. Last December, this mm-hmm. is December 2018, 5,000 agents owed the tax office $115 million in outstanding tax. And many of us recall the very public campaign that was run around Christmas time. Uh, basically, yes. you've got a month to get everything lodged, otherwise we'll come and knock on your door a bit harder. And in that period, $40 million was paid. And there was also an additional $500 million of extra assets in self-managed funds that have been reported. So these figures all come out of the Fin Review article, but certainly that $115 million has been well documented. A- a- absolutely. When I was the um, acting chair um, earlier in the year, th- these, were, these were very accurate statistics in terms of what you're reading from. I was quite shocked, I would have to say, that there was around 5,000 agents. So if you look at it in total numbers, so... It's about one in eight, isn't it? Yeah, it's about one in eight. So it doesn't sound like much, but 5,000 agents... Uh, registered with the board had outstanding debt obligations with the ATO totaling $115 million and I must say when the statistic was given to me my guess someone asked me what do you think the number is I, I was 
I was out a long way. So I underestimated. I think the other thing which was of some interest there is the number of agents that have outstanding, you just mentioned it, outstanding self-managed super fund annual returns. And the initial, the initial statistic that was given to me that a lot of agents are trustees of self-managed super funds. There was around 2,700 that had outstanding annual returns. I was... I was gobsmacked. 2,700 super funds. Yeah, uh, the, the, the annual returns outstanding that related to individual registrants. I was, where they were acting as a trustee, I was gobsmacked, to be honest. I would have guessed a couple of hundred. So um, that was disturbing. And, and the statistic you've given in terms of the lodgement program, we have seen a reduction in self-managed super fund assets at risk. I think it's around the $600 million mark. Um, the other statistic which I think is, is quite helpful is that we have seen some really good action around people getting engaged with the ATO. The message, if I can make it clear here today from the board, is engage with the ATO, get your filings up to date. If, if you're having trouble paying a, uh, a debt obligation, engage with the ATO, get a payment arrangement. Do not ignore it. Um, this is a very important topic for the board. The numbers are improving in terms of outstanding debt owed by tax agents. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great. I think mm-hmm. the reduction, some people would say, well, it's only $36, $40 million, Greg. Um, ignoring the number, to me, it's about our obligations in a profession, and we need to uphold high standards within the profession. We are a very important cog in the uh, tax administration system, uh, as you've alluded to before, with 75% of injury returns being prepared by agents and 95% of business. You know, We need to abide by high standards, and one of those standards is that we comply with the tax laws in our own affairs. If we can now turn to the specifics of the Code of Professional Conduct. Yes, absolutely. And we'll turn this back into plain English. So number one, you must act honestly and with integrity. This means agents, you must not backdate documents. Now, we can preach this till I'm blue in the face. But I've had a a separate discussion with Julianne Jakes on this podcast in terms of a litigation discussion. Yes, Julianne's one of our, uh, uh, my fellow board members, just to make you aware. She is. And when she and I were speaking, she was explaining why you shouldn't backdate, why it is not a a legal process. It's not accepted by the courts. Now, we can talk about the theory, but you and I have both been in the real world. We've seen it. We know it goes on. And I don't know that agents and taxpayers understand the implications of backdating a document. But to put it in this context, backdating is not acting honestly and with integrity. Absolutely. It, so I can't be as I can't be any more explicit. Absolutely. Yep. That is a really important code item: acting with honesty and integrity. Integrity is really, really paramount to us isn't as it? a profession. It is. Yes. Okay. Yep. Number two, we've talked about you've got to comply with the tax laws yes, in your own affairs. Yes, spoke about that. Lodging returns, lodging buses, paying Absolutely. your debts. Absolutely. Number three talks about if you receive money or property or hold it for someone, you've got to account to your client for that money or property. Yeah. So this is about trust accounts. Essentially, yes. Yeah, essentially about trust accounts. And it is that that's a very important space where people, one of the board's views around this, and we've issued some guidance, is that Within around 10 to 14 days of receiving um, a refund, you need to pass it on to your clients. Um, you cannot and should not be using refunds for cash flow purposes to fund and run your practice. Um, what about the just practice? want to make that observation. It, it's very important. Sorry, Greg. What about mm. the practice where you've got agents taking their fees out of refunds? 
Look, that's um, at the moment that's uh, that's legitimate. So if I agree with you today that I'm going to charge you a thousand dollars, just making it up, and I want to charge you two hundred dollars, if in my engagement letter you and I agree to that, uh, that's 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 quite fine. Where we find some sticking points there with agents is that a lot of times they haven't agreed that with their client up front, and the client will be asking for the refund, and or they'll only receive a portion of it, but they're not aware that the agent deducted the fee or the fees were greater than the refund so therefore they don't get a refund so I think the main message there is you need to agree these things up front with your client communicate communicate it's paramount and one of the things I bang on about all the time is getting an engagement letter in place and setting that scene Agreed. Now those three rules that we've spoken about all fall under the banner of honesty and integrity Absolutely yep that first critical code item Moving into the next code item Mm. independence and there are two that fall under this You must act lawfully in the best interest of your client. Now, there's a critical word in that, lawfully, because acting in the best interest of your client may not be lawful. Absolutely. If I say to you today, um, I've given you some uh, deduction uh, receipts. I'll let you claim the $1,000 suit because you work in a restaurant. Yeah, I just want you to claim it. Well, I give you the school fees, if we go back to Mr McNeese earlier, um, and I just instruct you to claim that in other work-related expenses. This, this area is quite clear from the board's perspective. You cannot take that instruction from the client and go and put the relevant deduction in the return. You can only act in the best interest of your client where it is lawful to do so. So lawful, which you've highlighted and I'm really pleased, is... Well, it's not lawful for me to claim school fees in your personal tax return, so I cannot accept your instruction. And you have, I think this is something that's really important for agencies. It's not easy, but we have to push back to our client and say, no, I cannot do that. You are putting my licence at risk. And you need to say to them, I, I need to act in your best interest, but only where it's lawful to do so. I want to pause on that before we keep going with mm. these other code items, because this comes up a lot. Mm. Some agents will say to me, you know, we told a client they couldn't do something, we lost the client and we're so proud of our position. We maintained our integrity, we're not going to risk our registration and our livelihood because some client wanted to claim something they shouldn't have. Mm. But I also hear stories of agents who lose clients to other agents and are so frustrated by that. I get a mixture of both. Um, We have, and I might ask at the end of the podcast to send out a link if we can, Um, This comes up quite a bit where a client will be talking to an agent, and I get this a lot when I go out to ATR Open Forums, where they get pressured or ask the question that you should do A, B and C. And if that client is a significant portion of the fees of that practice, it does put the person, uh, the registrant, in a difficult position. The law is quite simple with the code. You can't act uh, in the best interest of your client Um, unless you need to take into account the law. And the law will be that you cannot claim a deduction if you knowingly are looking at it and going, you can't. It's easy for me to say. Some of your listeners will be saying, well, that's easy for you to say, Greg, because you're just on a podcast today. Um, And and that's true. We've developed a one-page document that you can give to clients that uh, makes them aware of their obligations as a taxpayer. So you've asked me to do X today, Robin. These are the requirements you've got to do as a client, and these are potentially the implications. The other side on this document is also the client needs to understand that you're putting your business at risk because if the ATO goes out there and there's found to be a referral to the board and we go through and we find potential breaches, your licence can be at risk. And you need to communicate that to your client as much as possible. Um, some clients will just hold their line and say, no, nope, 
don't agree with you, then really to me, it goes back to then honesty and integrity. So from an integrity perspective, you will need to hold your ground. It's not an easy conversation to have, um, but it's one I would encourage all of your listeners to do. Uh, and it's one that I think is very important. Now, the second rule that falls under independence, you must have in place adequate arrangements for the management of conflicts of interest. This could be two spouses who are no longer on speaking terms. This could be the marriage breakdown. That's the classic this could example, be yes. The two business partners, mm. but basically there's a breakdown in a relationship somewhere. Yes. And you've now got an agent who's in the middle. Some of them seem to manage this quite well and they will continue acting for both, but they're in full disclosure and they yep. can remain impartial. Other times it's just escalated to such a point that they're going to have to walk away from one of them. Or I both, have, or even both. Yeah, both, yeah. I have seen some cases come before me as a board member where we've had a complaint from a consumer and it has been traditionally a marriage breakdown where an agent has been the advisor to both. My, my quick two-second snapshot is um, manage the process well. Be upfront with your... I'm just... You know, if we had an agent today and you and I were, were married and we were having a breakdown, you'd be upfront that you're acting for both, you'd be transparent with both. Um, it doesn't mean you can't have a conflict, it's how you manage it, how you disclose it. And there may be points in time where you do need to walk away from it. So that's professional judgment. If you think there's a point in time where should Robin claim the deduction or should Greg, and you think that you know, the conflict is too difficult, then you need to use professional judgment and get someone else in externally. So I think the important point out of that mm. is it's not in breach of the, the code or the act to have a conflict. It's going to be in breach if you don't manage Correct. that or have in place. Have in place, have the relevant procedures. So we do from time to time in our profession come across conflicts of interest, but it's how you go about it and how you disclose and how you manage it. All right, moving on to confidentiality, and this is only one ah, item. Ah, yes, yes. Unless you have a legal duty to do so, you must not disclose any information relating to a client's affairs to a third party without your client's permission. Mm, so I think this is misunderstood. Yeah, so the, it's a, I'm pleased you brought this up. So it's very simple. Um, you're my client. Uh, I cannot disclose any information about your affairs to a third party without, unless and there's two bases. One, where there's a legal requirement to do so, so I get a relevant information request under the relevant statutory authority from the ATO or a court order, just an example. Or you agree in writing to me, Greg, that you can hand on the information to a relevant party. And the, the example may well be, I've got to give your last three years worth of tax returns to the consumer finance person because you want to buy yourself a new car. And this would typically and be done through either as a one-off or yeah, through an engagement one-off. letter. Yeah, an engagement letter mm. um, in that regard. The, the one where this becomes important is a lot of us now in the digital environment use cloud cloud hosting services and arguably or not arguably the information will be housed by a third party so in that regard you need to, i need to agree with you up front that i'm using a cloud service provider in canberra today but we're both based in melbourne that's a third party i need to disclose to you who that party is what they're holding and make sure that you've agreed for that to occur most of us on this call today would be thinking oh i've got a range of clients where i need to agree that Yes, you should, because a third party is privy to that information and you need to get your client's permission to do so. I think agents understand the process mm. of taking financials and giving them to a financial advisor or a lawyer yeah. or a bank mm. or whatever. But the process of just saving a document in Dropbox so I can work on it at home this evening, Dropbox is a third party hosted server. Correct. Ab- absolutely. It's no different to sending out tax returns via email and having TFNs disclosed on them. Um, absolutely. And I think this is the, 
This is this, in the digital world. This is where the client confidentiality is super important. A lot of us today, and both of you and I've got our mobile phones off, but I would hate to guess that you've probably got email on your phone. And I'm mentioning this today for all of your listeners: is a lot of you get, you know, um, we get emails on the phone, we get other information, we access it from multiple sources. These are all third parties, and the reason I, I, I think this is important is that. There may come a time where that third-party provider is inadvertently uh, subject to a, a hack, and that information may get publicly disclosed. So you're better off. I'm better off saying to you today, Robin, that the cloud service provider in Canberra is hosting that information, and you're agreeing to that. And then somewhere down the track, their uh, security walls are breached. I'd rather you and I agree that up front than down the track you see your name in the paper. I'm just thinking of Panama Papers, just as a stream example. How did it get there? You didn't tell me that the cloud service provider had my information. So for me, I think it actually makes good business sense. It's about protecting your client. Even ignoring the code of conduct, it's about protecting your client. It's very important. I think we should also delineate between something like a a MyOB or a Xero file where the client sets it up in the cloud and then grants access to the agent. Or it's an agent set up where they're basically granting access to the client. That's all done between them at that level. Yeah, correct. I'm talking about where the client doesn't really think about the, the Dropbox file or the OneDrive yeah. file or yeah. something like that, which is sitting in the yeah. cloud, or the servers, sometimes yeah, servers. offices. This, I use the cloud hosting server. The other one I use also is the um, a lot of people outsource their bookkeeping. Yes. So you might outsource, you're the agent today, you might outsource four or five of your clients to, for me to go down once a month and do the books. Well, Or offshore. Or offshore. I could be in the Philippines or India or somewhere and you know, I'm a third party. Did you get the client to approve for those people to actually have that information? Absolutely. Mm. Um, And just separate to anything in the code, um, we've heard stories about disgruntled employees who leave a practice and have access to data or even wipe it. So take a copy and then wipe it. And we've heard stories of firms being left with virtually no information Mm. and then they've got to scramble and and try and reconstruct it all with the ATO. It's Mm. a dreadful state of affairs. Digital security, we have a paper out on some of the things that practitioners should be thinking about in the digital world. Digital security is really important within the profession. All right, moving on to competence. Now, there are four that fall under this, so I wonder if we could almost group them together. I think you can, yeah. Um, Mm. We've got to ensure that what you do is provided competently. You've got to maintain skills and knowledge. You've got to take reasonable care in ascertaining your client's state of affairs. And you've got to take reasonable care to make sure the tax laws are applied correctly. So four specific issues, but it really comes under the banner of you've got to apply the law correctly and know what you're doing. And understand the facts that are given to you. Absolutely. Now, Two main things I wanted to focus on here. Mm. You must maintain knowledge and skills, uh, something very dear to my heart, of course, as well, a trainer. Which should be for this organisation, absolutely. <laughs> so you've got to have CPD requirements. Now, agents are subject to the professional bodies. If they're a financial advisor, they're subject to ASIC requirements. I mean, they've got, they're being pulled in all directions. And they on top of that, indeed, yes. the board is also requiring a minimum number of hours per year. That is correct. So if I look at myself today, so I'm a member of a couple of um, the professional bodies. I won't mention them, so we're not uh, yes. giving preference to any. And they have their own requirements, and I have the board's requirements. Uh, my requirements are very similar. If I look at the board's requirements, they are quite similar in terms of hours uh, to two or three of the large accounting professions. They're not mirror image. 
there is arguably some overlap between these two, and that you've, you've highlighted that in this, this regard. Um, that is probably something that the reviewer will be uh, looking at. Uh, in, in that regard around it, uh, the education requirements. It would be good. I'm a member mm. of three professional bodies plus I'm a registered tax agent, so I've got four <laughs> different sets of requirements yes. to work through. Now, as a trainer, I'm, I'm, I've got thousands of hours coming out my year. Correct, so yeah, you, sh- you shouldn't have a problem. I don't have a challenge with that. If I, if I could trade them to anyone who's short of hours, yeah. come and talk to me. Um, secondly, what extent are agents expected to go to? They're not auditors. So if a client comes in and says... Mm. I want to claim this, or I've got this many Ks that I want to claim. Do we just accept that at face value? To what extent do we need to make further inquiry? When Mm. does it warrant going further behind the numbers? Yeah, good question. I had a gentleman ask me in ATO Fortman recently if someone signed a stat deck on a piece of uh, information, uh, could I just blindly accept that, which is sort of an extreme example of what you've just said. The reality is you need to understand your client's state of affairs. So when you're making a professional judgment around a piece of information, um, you should put it in the context of fully understanding your client's state of affairs rather than blindly just accepting it and saying, oh, we can deduct the school fees even though uh, you know, um, I'm an accountant today, there's no connection. Not to say there's any connection with the school fee deduction um, in that regard. My view to all the listeners is that you don't need to check everything, so the board is not saying that. Uh, take Undertake random spot checks, um, but you do need to make it clear to your clients when they're giving you a particular information that you say to them, you're going to need to have relevant information to support that if we get asked further questions. But the important issue here is if it's a new client, I would be arguing you need to probably be doing more detailed type of work and investigation. But the, the critical piece is understanding the client's state of affairs because once you understand that, you can use your professional judgment to say, should I go and ask Greg a few more questions about that deduction that he's just put there? So if I put car expenses on the table and I'm just a person who works in the city, goes to the office, doesn't see any clients, and you're preparing my return, you might say, well, how can you actually get some car expenses claimed, Greg? So you really need to look at the occupations and the type of business, then ask some relevant questions. Just so stand back and look at it. Stand back and look at it. Don't just blindly accept it. We will not accept that at the board level. Uh, that is not appropriate behaviour. And that, if I look at the Code of Conduct, is uh, if I look at Code Items 8 and 9, it's not in accordance with those Code Items. I have had a number of agents recently say to me that between them and their staff, if they do ask another couple of questions, they're getting better information and they're more comforted by what the client's telling them. So they're saying it doesn't take much. You just no. got to ask a couple of extra things. Yeah, we're not... Look, you'll, and you'll as I said to you earlier, I've been in public practice for many years. We get the concept of time as money and billable hours. So you don't need to go and spend ages and ages doing it. It's just ask a couple of extra questions. Now, the last four items fall under the category of other responsibilities. Mm. You must not knowingly obstruct the proper administration of the laws. E.g., tax office turns up with what we call a 353-10 notice. It's the old 263 or yeah, 264 correct. notice. Yeah, yeah, 264. And they have to get access. You can't say, no, you're not welcome on the premises. Or, that's, a, that's a very basic example. So that's a basic yes. one. Yep. You must advise your clients of their rights and obligations under the laws that are materially related to the services you provide. Mm. You must maintain PI insurance. Very Let's pause on that. Very important PI. Is that an issue? Is this something that's just happening routinely and everyone's going about their merry way or are there issues out there with agents not maintaining PI or appropriate uh, PI? Good question. So when you've 
registered with the board, you need to main, have PI then maintain it throughout your period of registration. When you complete your annual declaration each year, you need to confirm that you have a current and valid policy that meets the minimum requirements of the board. The bulk of the challenges we see in that space is a lot of agents don't notify us. So, so they've got the PI. They yeah, just don't so tell you. you might have registered with the board two or three years ago and, and your PI policy has expired. But we may be going through your renewal or through an AD and saying, hold on, uh, that's out of, out of date. So we then have to have follow-up uh, communications with yourself. So one of the things if I could ask your listeners to do is please make sure your relevant details with the board are up to date. And a good example is if you've got an, a PI policy, just check that that policy version is the one that we've actually got as stated with your registration. And the last one, you must respond to requests and directions from the board. So if the board wants something, needs something from you... Respond and communicate us in a timely manner and also engage with our staff in an appropriate manner. So it's a bit like the ATO. The board doesn't like it when you go quiet. No. No. Correct. That's... Greg, I want to come back to something you mentioned. TFN's being sent out in emails. We're talking about the the cloud-based and the security issues and confidentiality. There's an ongoing issue because when the client receives the payment slip, which they need to make the physical payment, e.g. at the post office or electronically, there is an EFT code and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that your TFN is embedded in that code. Yeah, you take off the first four digits, I think, from memory and then the rest is generally the the TFN. Isn't this an ongoing problem? Yes, I would argue from a practicality that is a real challenge, yeah. And I know that's been raised at the the TPSG. I would argue it's a work in progress. I'd need to defer to the ATO in that okay. regard. So, um, in our closing minutes, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about the focus on agents. Where to from here? We're waiting for the final review from Keith James and um, those assisting him. The board's activities are going to be um, the focus of that review and there will be recommendations coming from it. Now, you can't comment on the, the report because we're yet to see it and we don't know what it's going to recommend. Mm. But just some final observations about where you see the board heading, the future of the profession and the challenges that lie ahead. Mm. I, no, absolutely. That's good. That's a great way to close out. If I look at those three things, uh, look, I eagerly await Keith's final review. I think uh, you know Keith has done a great job to date uh, and... I think we're all looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, the reviewer come back with, you know, comments to see what what can be done, uh, what should be done, and engaging with everybody around that. We'll see the outcome of his submission later this year. That will be uh, handed down. Then we'll wait for uh, the government and treasury's response uh, in that regard. If I look at the board's activities, so our board will continue to focus on what I've spoken about. So we will continue to do our CPE reviews and audits. Uh, we will continue to focus on the work-related expense and referrals from the ATO. These all go to the heart of the profession in terms of the integrity of the profession and, and providing services to a competent standard. We will continue to focus on personal tax obligations, as you and I have spoken about. Um, that, again, goes back to base obligations of uh, being registered uh, with the board. That strategy, in terms of some of the core focuses, will not change in the short term, and our chair has made that, that clear from the board's perspective. Uh, that may be re-looked at once we see the review uh, and, and take that into account, but at the moment they're the, cre- they're the three main focuses from the board's perspective. Um, we also have a focus, you mentioned earlier, we did receive some black economy funding as part of that 20, so we have four or five staff involved in specifically dealing with black economy matters, so that is also a focus for the black board. Black economy activities of clients of agents? No, agents, the agents themselves, themselves involved in potential activities involved in the black economy. So, yeah, the black economy is quite broad if you look at the definitions. So, again, that'll be 
primarily referrals from the ATO. How many agents get paid in cash? I'm, well, I don't, so uh, in that regard, uh, I'll, may well be when I come back on again, if you'll allow me to, that we may have some more data on that uh, in that regard, so I don't have any information there, so we'll uh, see the outcomes of that. Um, well, it would be great to get you back. And your last question you had was the future of the profession. I think from the board's perspective, and I think you'll have seen or agents will see, we are very focused on the digital space, so the way we connect with agents Good example is the podcast today. Uh, we need to use various means to communicate with our members, sorry, our registrants. We also want to make their lives easy in terms of uh, registering and renewals with us. Uh, the other piece I think which is going to be a real focus for us, it comes out of the Banking Royal Commission, is working really closely with regulators. So ASIC's a good example with the TFAs where we can use information between the two that's beneficial. Um, also, and I think the other piece is, and it goes to our earlier piece, is that people are expecting regulators to uh, take action and be firmer. And I think that's one of the messages that we saw as a board. And, and we are uh, moving into that space. And I think, as you've seen with some of the statistics, that's that's clearly evident. Uh, I don't apologise for where the board is going and what we're doing. Agents want us to take relevant and appropriate action when the circumstances deem it to be necessary. Very good. Greg, I want to come back to the fact sheet that you referred to earlier in our discussion. The link, if people want to find it, if they go to the Tax Practitioners Board website, so that's tpb.gov.au, and on the left-hand side, under Finding and Using a Practitioner, there is a tab called, or a heading called Information for Clients. Mm -hmm. Within that, there is then a downloadable PDF. Now, it's a two-page guide it's uh, bright green which of course are your corporate colors so great choice and (laughs) what it does is set out information for clients about their obligations to the tax office and the agent's obligations to the board so it's a good document absolutely look i encourage all of your listeners to download that today uh it was developed by a couple of our key policy staff as a result of i had a couple of agents come and talk to me where they're feeling, feeling extraordinarily pressured to bend to clients' instructions. So I, I highly recommend the document. And I add there's a, a lot of other useful information. Um, in our yeah. training notes, we often provide links and information about the fact sheets that the board's constantly oh, I'm pl- provide. I'm pleased, I'm pleased that you do that. And secondly, I'm pleased that you found that document very quickly. So uh, it was easy to find. our marketing team will be very happy that our website is user-friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, it's been a delight having you in here, so thank you for joining me. No, thank you. Absolute pleasure having me here today. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.